This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, who's also a senior economist for Wisdom Tree. Please note, I am a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor for Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. Uh, we're going to have a very interesting conversation today with Professor Robert Novi Marks the Zeckelman Distinguished Professor of Business at the uh, University of Rochester. It'll be a very interesting discussion on factors and some of his long-term research. But we're going to kick off the show with Professor Siegel. Professor, the big week on inflation. We got some of the updated data. How are you reacting to everything that you're seeing? Yeah, well, I, I would entitle this, The Beat Goes On. And what I mean is the real economic activity is still remaining strong. I mean, we saw retail sales. Uh, above a little bit above expectation, a little down to revision previous month. Uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the uh, PMI reports are still strong. And of course, the one I look at a lot is the initial jobless claims, still strong. Um, nothing weakening on the real side. Uh, now, on inflation, a tad hotter than expected, but certainly not hot enough to spark an increase next week. I'll talk about the FOMC meeting next week in, 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 in just a moment. We do, we do have a big increase in oil. There's no question about that. I mean, oil above 90. Um, and that's despite the fact that the dollar in the last couple of months have risen by 5%. So, um, you know, trade on the international markets, uh, the, uh, uh, euro prices even, uh, gone up even more. Um, I, I uh, just came down to the shore and uh, I, I looked at the line. The the Shams Club here has the cheapest gas on the island. And I've never seen a line so long on cars because uh, they take a few days to mark their prices up. And, uh, you know, people are this is this is something this is going to be a little bit of of a consumer hit. Uh, of course, since, you know, we're, uh, you know, we're a big producer of oil, too. There's a lot of income going to the oil producers uh, as a result uh, of, of that. So we're not net importers of energy, although we are importers of certain types of energy. Um, but this is something that bears looking at. And that's one reason, of course, that uh, overall inflation up six tenths of a percent of the core was only up two uh, percent, two tenths of a percent. The truth is. The market is much more interested in how strong the economy is going to be in the next six months about whether the Fed is going to raise one more 25 basis point increase in November or not, or December. I mean, that's about all we talk about. But truthfully, um, even with that hotter data, uh, we had a good day. Why? Because the real economic activity came in strong. That's much more important at this point. Uh, not that the Fed isn't important, it is, but whether there's one increase or not, or even if you want to say two increases or not, um, is not as important as keeping the real economy going, the recession watch being pushed back and back and back and back. This means earnings are going to be good into 2024. That, I think, is most important. Now, let me preview next week. No increase. But pretty hawkish um, on docs. I think you're going to get the group saying between one and two, there are going to be a number that are going to want two increases before the end of the year, not one. And Powell in his talk is going to, he likes to parrot what the, uh, you know, the FOMC members do on their dot plot. So um, he will say we're totally data dependent, which they are, um, but it's going to keep strong. Uh, clearly, and not surprisingly, core inflation, uh, uh, particularly X rent, is going to be very stubborn for quite a while. Um, and uh, you know, uh, you know, the, the big question is, which we've 
talked about so often, is it worth to have a recession to squeeze out core inflation one point or one and a half points uh, over the next two years faster than it would otherwise be? I think the answer is not, uh, uh, particularly. Uh, I was interested in hearing uh, Ken Griffin on CNBC be a big interview and saying uh, virtually exactly the same thing. Um, so he's going to talk tough. I, w- I wouldn't, uh, I-, I think, 2% target. We're not there. May need another hike, maybe even more. He won't limit it, uh, and he won't confirm it. Um, but uh, there's, uh, there's still work to be done uh, on the inflation front. Um, especially with oil going up. And I know it's, we look at the core rate, but still that's one factor that's there. I heard that the OPEC is, OPEC plus is restricting 4 billion, um, uh, uh, barrels a day. Um, I think 4 million barrels a day on, uh, supply, uh, the, they're the biggest restriction that they've had. So there is capacity out there, but it is being, uh, restricted at the, at the present time. Um, uh, let me just comment, uh, you know, we have uh, auto strike. I think it's going to be a little longer than a lot of people think. Uh, you know, Ford put, uh, GM and Ford put 2021% on the table. I think it's expectation it's going to come in 27, 28, but who knows whether Shane is holding out for 31 or 32. His, uh, you know, offers uh, right now is up to 40. Uh, so this may uh, last a little bit longer. We also have a government shutdown to negotiate at the end of the month. We'll see how the Republicans want to react on that. That's always been a loser, but they they play that game all all the time um, and eventually cave in. Only when Trump was president did they keep it longer than anywhere else before they also caved in. Um, So, you know, the question is, you know, there'll be some disruption. So, the market is saying, yes, we're going to get a little bit of a strike, slow down. Yes, we might get some minor disruptions from the government. Nothing is going to be big. There's still momentum on the table. Um, uh, in, two, in, in terms of deposits, uh, commercial bank deposits, they fell last week uh, to the lowest since the lows that we reached during the SVB crisis in March. So that is a um, factor. Of course, you have to add currency and you have to add money market mutual funds. So people are still taking money out of banks, putting in money market mutual funds, alternative funding sources, et cetera. We'll take a look at M2. It has recovered. It's increasing slowly. I expect it to have another slow increase uh, when we get in, uh, the data in a week and a half. Um, but that's something uh, definitely to look at. So um, basically, I expect uh, a little hawkish uh, talk from the Fed, but as long as those real indicators and uh, remain as firm as they are, uh, the market still can tilt upward, not a boom, but a tilt upward um, um, towards uh, the year end. Any quick comments? Um, the other big news story of the week, you got everybody's focused on this ARM IPO. Uh, does it say anything with sort of tech valuations? Does it say anything about just the state of the market? Is it a sign of the top for tech today? You're getting a little bit of sell-off in some of those semiconductors and, and NASDAQ-heavy names. Any any sense no. from you on that? No, you're not going to get a sell-off until you get earnings disappointments, um, in my opinion. And it shows, uh, this is good, a reopening of the IPO sector, um, a healthy reopening. There's still appetite for risk. Yeah, jump to a premium, but not, you know, 100% premium off of what, you know, uh, you know we've seen. Um, uh, we'll see how it goes. Uh, you know, I think that's a positive development uh, for the market. And again, you haven't broken the back of the growth stocks. Um, you know, they, they, they've, they've taken a few tougher days as real yields have risen, and I expect them to remain firm. But still, you really get some events that imply a big downward revision to optimistic growth. You know, you can still have money moving into tech uh, in this economy, even though I certainly do love the valuations of uh, those, um, the non-tech stocks at the current time. 
We're going to be talking with Robert Navi Marks about his research on factors and investments and all sorts of different, uh, his ways of looking at Professor Marks, is there, uh, Navi Marks, is there anything on your, your expected returns as you think about, uh, we don't, you don't focus on the short term as much as Professor Siegel, but as you think about the expected return dynamic, how, how are you thinking about the markets uh, in general and any questions for the professor uh, before we, we say goodbye to him? Yeah, so I guess I'm not as smart as Jeremy, so I can't forecast. Oh, I don't think that's true, Mark. (laughs) um, uh, I guess I just, um, I'm I'm not a forecaster. I'm more of a cross-sectional guy, um, and uh, we can talk about why, but uh, it's not really a question for Jeremy. Okay. And I I do want to, you know, repeat again things that we have been talking about for for equity risk premiums. And, um, oops. Oh, so we have a little interruption. Uh, got, we're back. Equity risk premiums. Um, can you hear me? Yeah, perfect. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Uh, equity risk premiums. Again, a 20 PE is a 5% real return um, on a forward going basis. Tips are 2%. That's a 3% equity risk premium. Smaller than we've had in recent years, but very much in line with the long run historical average um, that we've had. I do not think the market overall is overvalued. I think tech is slightly overvalued. I think value stocks are undervalued. But overall, I don't see anything outside of a total unexpectedly, uh, you know, a negative event uh, tripping up this market in the short run. Well, Professor, thank you for kicking us off to start the show. Uh, have a good weekend down there at the shore, and we'll, we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you very much. I'm going to turn my conversation to Robert Novi Marks, who is a professor at University of Rochester, also a consultant to dimensional funds. Um, professor, tell us a little bit about how you yourself, your, your background, we're going to talk about all sorts of your factor research, which I've been following very, very closely for the last decade. Um, but tell us how you what what you studied and and how you got interested in this sort of investing world and, and factor investing world. Yeah, so I uh, I actually came to economics fairly late. I had a, been a physics guy in college, and I started the math PhD briefly, um, but I got sidetracked for seven years uh, doing triathlon full time, and during that time I. I, um, I, my, my wife and I moved in together and, uh, she was doing a PhD in economics at Princeton. And, um, so, uh, I was around economics through that. And, um, when I went back to graduate school after my triathlon career ended, um, I kind of knew I was switching over and, uh, the, the finance was what really interested me. Um, but, but I came to it late and, uh, it took me a while to come to, um, the kind of work I do now. I started out um, doing sort of very theoretical models, um, didn't look at a lot of data, but um, I think going to Chicago um, as a junior faculty and being in that environment uh, really pushed me to uh, sort of think about, you know, what are the implications for the real world and, and tying my work to data, and um, I haven't really looked back since. Um, in terms of, of the factor work, um, uh, I really came to that through, you know, initially through the profitability work, um, which came out of thinking about value. Um, I was actually thinking more about sort of um, model, mo- grounded in, in theory models of, of value premium. Um, but some of the predictions I had um, from the models um, were um, you know, some of the empirical proxies um, also suggested stuff that was similar to what we were seeing in some of the accounting literature out of the old DuPont model. Um, it had measures, um, my, my models had measures like um, the, the costs uh, of, of your operations relative to your sales, things about um, operating leverage. Um, but that looks a lot like sales per assets, um, which is in the old DuPont model, the measure of, of asset turnover, a measure of operating of a, of a operating efficiency. And uh, I was trying to kind of distinguish between the empirical predictions of these different models and 
Um, I saw that these sort of up income statement measures of profitability just had really strong, striking predictive power for differences in stock returns across different assets. Um, and, uh, and that's what kind of got me to the profitability work I do. You know, one one of the reasons we had you on this week, uh, I should tease out, you know, next week you're going to be presenting at the Jacobs Levy Equity Management Center. There's an annual quant conference in New York, September 22nd. You're going to be presenting at uh, the the New York Merit Marquis. I think they've closed registration for this, this Jacob Levy Equity Management Center, Quantitative Financial Research, that's based out of Wharton. We usually broadcast behind the markets from there. We've been broadcasting there, I want to say, for the last five years, but unfortunately, I'm going to be abroad and won't be able to be on, on site. But so we're we're teasing out next week's conference, and and Professor Navi Marks is is uh, is going to be one of the presenters. There, we'll get into his paper that he's doing there. But I, I love this 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 point that you're just making on the profitability and the value factor and some of your roots at Chicago, uh, and clearly that's sort of the ties to dimensional uh, in, in some ways. But what, in, in the value premium, you heard your Professor Siegel think, hey, tech stocks look expensive. Value's been underperforming for 15 years. What do you think is the current state of value research? Is Do we have to rethink you know, some of, of how well value research applies given this run of mega growth stocks, uh, the price to book value as, as one of those three fa- Fama French three-factor models that came out and then you came out with uh, sort of the, the operating profitability and, and getting to a five-factor model. We talked through all these other, these other factors, but what do you think about value as a factor at the moment? Yeah, so I've got kind of a, a long answer to that question, which is that I'll start by saying that Though profitability is kind of my baby, and I'll always be associated with profitability, um, if you were to ask me what is the factor I have the most confidence in in terms of very long-term performance, the first one I would say is the equity premium, if you want to consider that a factor. Um, But I would go to value next, um, because I just think that, you know, regardless of why you think value has ever been there, um, I just... I, I just don't see how to get around the fact that stocks are discounted expected cash flows and high discount rates, high expected rates of return are associated with low prices. Um, and so I just, you know, whether you think it's for risks or whether you think people are just making mistakes, you know, stocks that are, when we talk about stocks being undervalued, we're saying we, you know, they have a high expected rate of return, but they're, they have low prices, they're undervalued, so they should be, uh, they should look more like value stocks. So, so I am a long-term believer in value, despite its poor performance. Um, the reason the poor performance over the last decade doesn't concern me so much in terms of, of you know, betting on value going forward is that I know that I'm going to see decades of underperformance in every factor that's out there. I don't think any of these things, you know, even if they're good investment opportunities, they're not free lunches by any means. Um, you know, the sharp ratio in the market that we've observed in the historical data is on the order of 0.4. And I think that it's sort of reasonable to think that there might be other investment opportunities out there that have similar sharp ratios, but I don't really believe there are easily accessible investment opportunities with sharp ratios of two. And and when we're talking about market-like sharp ratios of 0.4, you just know there's going to be a... 10-year period of underperformance. And we saw that with the equity premium in the the early 2000s. Um, It was gone for a decade. It was a decade in which, you you know, there was basically zero gains to the market. I don't think anyone thought that the equity premium was gone, that it it was never coming back. Um, It's just that these are very risky. You know, there's a risk that you have to take for the reward. If there was no risk, this would be a free lunch. And I just don't think there are. Um, in terms of, of uh, you know, it all kind of relates to why I don't do a lot of short-term forecasting. I mean, it's because um, I just think it's a very hard thing to do. And it's because I don't, you know, I, I, I'm pretty bullish about the market in general long-term, but I love to ask people, what do they think the equity premium is? So, Jeremy, what do, what do you think the equity premium is? Well, based on all my work with Dr. Siegel, uh, you know, stocks for the long run. And it's, and it's funny to have the professor be so stocks for the long run, yet he loves to comment on the market's gyration each and every week and give you his sense of what's happening right now. 
but we we showed you know over 200 years it was around 300 basis points of stocks beating bonds and that that's you know for the last decade you had this equity premium that was much higher um, when you looked at sort of the earnings yield versus tips yield so you got five six percent normally i mean we were sort of spoiled for the last decade if you were a stock investor um and yes now it's low at 300 but that's sort of the 200 year average and both stocks and bonds are expensive versus their history but and and so then so i mean i i do the same thing you're doing what i would call the frequentist calculation of looking at past performance and just using the data you have without having a prior on it um but when you do that if you do it if you get that that average by running a regression should also give you some estimate of your confidence interval on that estimate. Um, and with 200 years of data, you've probably got a confidence interval of maybe 2%. So, you know, you, I would guess that you'd be saying there's a 95% chance that the equity premium is between 1% and 5%. For most people I talk to, you know, I hear 6%. Um, partly they're, they're looking at short-term, um, you know, the, the premium over short-term treasuries as opposed to the tips, I think that's the spread's a little longer, a little bigger if you, if you uh, use uh, short-term nominal instruments as your as your risk-free rate. Um, but I, I agree, we've been spoiled in the last hundred years, and the, the equity premium you see in the U.S. data over the last hundred years is, is almost six percent relative to, to T-bills. Um, but again, the confidence interval there with only hundred years of data, with only hundred years of data, um, is like two and a quarter percent. So. Um, there you're saying, you know, you've got a, that the, the person who believes that 6% estimate as their point estimate would say they're, they're pretty confident the equity premium is between 1.5% and 10.5%. So it's, it's, it's just, yes, I believe there's an equity premium, but I don't have much confidence in exactly what it is. Um, and that's using 100 years of data. And so for me, the exercise of, you know, looking at what's happened lately or in the last five years and trying to forecast whether the equity premium is higher or lower than its long-run average, which I can't estimate well in, in, in very long data sets, I just think it's a very hard exercise. Um, and I, I, I mean, I'm not saying there's no one that can do anything there, but it's, um, yeah, you know, there's not a lot of evidence in the academic data about people's abilities to forecast at short terms. Most of the predictors that come out of the early literature on forecasting market returns um, are very slow moving predictors um, and um, you don't get a lot of variation in your estimates over time. And um, you know, there's been some very good studies that have shown a lot of those predictive studies about variables that have been found to predict the market um, don't work out of sample at all. So um, I just am much more comfortable thinking about uh, what sort of stocks we should invest in than about whether we should be investing in stocks or not more or less at different times. Now, now, one of the reasons why value and sort of the traditional price to book value has struggled so much is sort of a sector bias towards towards those stocks or traditional financials versus tech is like a classic one. But is as you think about specifying the value factor and, and given that was your second factor of, of confidence in, do you think people should be doing things more sector neutral in some ways or industry neutral to say we should be buying the value stocks within tech instead of just saying, hey, we're going to always buy financials over tech? Is there something to that line of research and the specification of how you define your factors? Yeah, so I, I mean, it's undeniable that a big portion of the underperformance of value is due to sector tilts. Um, and um, if you do look at you can really decompose the performance of any value strategy into the performance of its sector tilts and what else is there. Um, and um, you do see that um, the sector tilts helped value um, a few decades ago, but in the last decade, they've been terrible for it. But overall, they haven't really contributed very much. Um, and so I would say that the, the premium looks more reliable um, if you're looking within sectors and across sectors, because um, it, it's just a lot of the, the variation in the performance of value over time, the way it's sort of simply been constructed, um, is due to unintentional bets, perhaps, on sectors which are not contributing to, to sort of what I think of as true value performance. Um, in terms of doing things differently, I mean, I guess this relates to the work on profitability, which is 
you know, I kind of, the, my, my paper, my original paper is called The Other Side of Value. Um, and I was really coming at this thinking about the profitability strategies as being a different sort of value. Um, you know, I think that traditional value or what I would call Benjamin Graham value, price-based value, um, is um, trying to find um, productive capacity cheaply. So you're looking to buy assets at a discount by buying stocks that are trading at low multiples. Um, and um, sort of, I think, philosophically, the, the profitability strategies I was originally advocating, I was thinking about them as being an alternative way of buying productive assets cheaply and using these profitability metrics um, as sort of a measure of, uh, you know, how, how profitable the assets of the underlying firms are. Um, and I guess I would say, I would, you know, in terms of popular investors, I would sort of call that more Warren Buffett value because you've got this thing that he, yes. he said repeatedly that it's, oh, it's back in the day that Charlie Munger taught me that it's far better to buy a wonderful company at a fair price than to buy a fair company at a wonderful price. Um, and I, I kind of view the profitability metrics as trying to find the, you know, the, the wonderful companies, whereas the, the value metrics are helping you find the good prices. Ultimately, I think that they really are complementary. I think that was really why the work I did um, kind of took off um, so much and, and, and industry was so interested in it. It's that they're very complementary. And I, I actually don't think about, um, you know, I think about value, value signals, price signals as being a signal of cheap firms, high, high, uh, high expected returns. Um, but cheap prices, of course, you know, there's two sides. Cheap prices either mean low expected future dividends or um, high discount rates. Um, and with pure price signals, you find both. You find, you know, on average, you, a, a pure price-based value investor gets a portfolio of stocks that has had high expected returns historically, um, but it has a lot of firms that kind of look like bad firms, too, because it's also finding firms that have low expected cash flows. Um, and, you know, in industry, we call those value traps, where um, they're value firms without high expected returns, and it's really because they have such bad future expected cash flows. Um, and I view uh, what the profitability metrics is doing is helping you find a more informative price signal. So um, the, the firms that are highly profitable um, or, or more profitable, the, the, the deep value firms that have decent profitability um, are much less likely to be value traps. Um, the, the price signal is telling you more about the expected return and less about the expected future cash flows once you've conditioned on profitability. And so you just get a, a, a better value strategy. There, there's so many different places we could go in this conversation. But the as you think about the measures of profitability, and, and you're sort of known for the gross profits to assets line of research, there's other ways of defining profitability. As, as you think, one of, given that we sort of talked about tech versus some of these others, what do you think about some of the research on intangible assets and all the tech investments that are sort of not, cap, not capitalized, sort of the R&D expenditures that – you know, if you depreciate over a number of years, their profitability would look much higher today. Do you think there's something to that line of research for, hey, maybe tech is is more profitable than we say otherwise today? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I guess I have answers to the general and the specific. Um, the specific is about, you know, intangibles. And um, I mean, I've looked at this quite a bit. Um, there have been intangible investments for a long time. They look a little different now than they used to. Um, but intangibles have always been something that are there. Um, and, you know, there's been a lot of efforts to address intangibles, um, the stuff that you don't see in the assets we use in the book equity, um, by trying to come up with some measure of capitalized um, investments that um, aren't treated as investments um, by the accountants and um, trying to come up with some measure from historical um, outlays um, how much intangible extra assets there might be there that don't show up on the balance sheet. Um, and um, when I've tried to do this, I don't see any improvement in sort of investment performance by trying to incorporate those intangibles. Um, in terms of, um, what was the other part of that? 
the, the, the best definition of profits in terms of gross profits to assets versus other measures of profitability? In tech in particular. So when I first started presenting the paper, um, Amazon was actually a great case study for me in you know, 2011, 2012, because at that point, it, you know, the way analysts talked about it, it had no profitability. But the measure of profits that I use, you know, I, I advocate going up the income statement. And I don't, you know, for these things, I, I'm always a skeptic of people who try and, um, you know, do too much tweaking of their metrics. I mean, if it's really there, it should work with any decent metric that you use. Um, because we're talking about generally how you try and capture these premiums in broadly diversified portfolios. And you're either going to tilt that way or you're not. Um, and, um, but, um, you know, the, the analysts were saying Amazon was unprofitable, but by my metrics, which were far up the income statement, Amazon was actually among the most profitable firms in the, the universe. Um, and so um, it was a great case study because, I mean, it really was about what do we mean by profitability? I mean, I, I don't think bottom line earnings, um, which the analysts spend a lot of time talking about, are a very informative measure of sort of economic profitability or, or uh, very good at forecasting long-term profitability of firms. I think the, the up-income statement measures are much more informative that way. And for people who aren't as familiar with their gross profit versus a net income that they sort of report in these, you know, the standard income, when people talk about firms meeting or beating earnings, talk about the, 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 the main differences between gross profits versus sort of net income. Yeah, so gross profits or operating profits um, are measures that, um, that don't punish firms uh, in their profitability for investment-related activities that are not treated as investment by the accountants. Um, so um, when you, you know, when you build a new factory and that's a, a real investment, that's not treated as an expense. It's treated as an investment by the accountants. And so it doesn't come out of bottom line earnings in the same way. Whereas um, lots of other things like R&D investment or advertising, um, Efforts you spend on um, developing human capital of your workforce training um, are all things that count as expenses, but the only reason firms undertake them is to increase future profits. You wouldn't be doing those activities if you didn't think they had some long-term benefit to you. Um, and so it's basically trying to, um, you know, to distinguish between, it, it, you don't want to be exp expensing investments because it, it, lowers profits and um, you don't want to punish firms for doing uh, positive MTV um, investment activities. And, and so that that's what these upstream measures of profitability do. They sort of add back these activities. Now, one of the, the lines of research, when we talk about the original FOM French three-factor model, uh, you know, the, the, this operating profitability gets added. If you were to say, in your view, what the the best descriptor, you sort of mentioned sort of being a cross-sectional guy in terms of how you think about the world, what is, is, what's the factor model you believe in today? How many factors are there in your best case scenario of, of what's describing the model? What, what Are there anything, you know, in the original three-factor model, was this equity risk premium, the value factor, the size factor? We've got this profitability factor. Is that it? Is there momentum? What, what's your sense of what else there is? The standard model now also includes an investment factor, um, which is, um, you know, in the data you see that, especially for small firms, small firms that are growing in assets very quickly tend to underperform. Um, and um, the way I think about that is, um, you know, how do you come up with the cost of capital for them? Why would we expect this? Why, why should firms investing a lot be a bad signal for the stock? Um, well, how does a firm decide if it's going to invest? It decides to invest by doing some NPV calculation on its next investment. And that NPV calculation, the future cash flows they expect to produce are discounted at some weighted average cost of capital, which includes the firm's expected equity return in it. So firms that have very high expected returns, very high cost of capital, that's a discouragement to investment. With firms that are getting easy money, which essentially means that they're that they have low expected returns, um, they 
are able to undertake more investments because they're using a lower discount rate on future cash flows. So you you would kind of think that lots of investment is a signal that the expected return on the underlying asset of the underlying firm is low. Um, and um, so you see that in the data. You see that firms that um, have assets that are not growing um, outperform firms that have invest that, that have assets that are growing a lot. Um, now that factor it's very strong in the data, especially among the small firms, but that factor looks a lot like value. I mean, we're saying that the firms that are doing a lot of investments have lower expected returns. The firms that don't have higher expected returns. But the firms that are doing a lot of investment are the growth firms. They're the ones who are acquiring other firms and, and, uh, and, and growing very quickly. And so um, there's a lot of overlap between those two factors, even though they're both in the standard five-factor model that's used now. Um, people use a momentum factor a lot in academia, um, and it's very important for recognizing uh, momentum, um, that if a strategy has a tilt to momentum, but it's not one that explains a lot of other things. Like, you know, I think the, the real power of the factor models, the thing we're trying to do always is, is use parsimony. We want to have as few ingredients as we need to explain as much of the world as possible. Um, and, you know, I think the factors that we are using the standard model are quite good at explaining, and certainly not everything, but pretty good at explaining, um, you know, big chunks of what we see. Um, but um, momentum seems to be very important for explaining momentum and not much else. Um, in terms of other factors, um, I mean, there are lots of other candidate factors, but, um, I guess there there are no other factors that are obvious, you know, obviously need to be included in the model. Um, From my point of view, um, I'm always looking for less, not more. Um, And, um, you know, I think there are lots of overlaps. And they're not always obvious. Like, one thing I'd like to, you know, I've I've thought a lot about um, volatility strategies. I'm sort of a skeptic of of, defensive equity in general. Um, And... Um, you know, I, th- I think partly that the model does a much better job explaining uh, the performance of, you know, the, the, the volatility strategies that we see than, than um, people are aware of. Um, and it, it's not that the factor model is going to price those assets exactly right, um, but I think we can understand what we see using the standard model. So, for example, what we see um, with the, the really striking feature of the data uh, around these sort of defensive equity strategies is that the high volatility stocks have really underperformed the low volatility stocks, at least post-1968. There's not much before that, 1968, but, but in the last, that's a pretty long sample, but, um, 50 years plus, you see this dramatic underperformance of, of high volatility stocks. The high volatility stocks are tiny, though. They're a pretty small part of the market, but they have performed terribly. Uh, they have a very large alpha, negative alpha relative to the models. But what else do we know about high volatility stocks? Well, high volatility stocks, now, if, you, if you want to use two things to predict volatility, it turns out that the two best things you can use are size, small stocks tend to be more volatile, and low profitability, unprofitable stocks tend to be more volatile. And actually, after controlling for profitability, uh, stocks that are growth stocks tend to be more volatile. Um, and so what you're saying, when you look at these high volatility stocks, they tend to be high unprofitable growth stocks, which is like the triple whammy for poor performance. And it turns out that they perform a lot like small unprofitable growth stocks. It doesn't explain the, the model alpha. Those small unprofitable growth stocks have a very large negative alpha relative to the standard models. Um, but they, they look a lot like the high volatility stocks. So that, that's an example where the standard model doesn't price this thing we see in the market that people talk about, but it does, it's explained by the standard model and known failings of the standard model. Um, and um, I don't know, I, I thought a lot about liquidity and liquidity is a factor that people would certainly like to include in the models, but um, it's not, it hasn't been very effective. Professor, you know, you're going to be presenting at the Jacobs, the Wharton School's Jacobs Levy Equity Management Center for Quantitative Financial Research at its 2023 Frontiers in Quantitative Finance Conference coming up next 
Friday uh, at the Marriott Marquis in New York for people who want to join. Uh, there's still ability to walk into the conference. You'll be presenting a paper called Reversals and the Return to Liquidity Provisions. Talk a little bit about this reversals research, how it ties into some of the long-term, we're talking about momentum a little bit. Talk a little bit about reversals, what it is, and what you'll be presenting on. Yeah, so reversals are, um, you know, something that's been documented in the, in the literature more than 50 years ago, um, that while there's momentum at a one-year horizon, we see in the data that stocks that have gone a lot of, over the, up a lot over the last year tend to outperform going forward. Um, at, at shorter horizons, stocks that have only gone up over the last month um, tend to underperform going forward. Um, and, um, you know, most of the explanations for this phenomena, um, the most common explanations today are related to liquidity. Um, you can think about um, why do stock prices go up or down? Well, it's because people are buying or selling. And um, so if the stock's gone up a lot, um, it's because people are buying it. Um, well, who's selling it to them? Someone's on the other side of that. And the person on the other side is, is performing some market-making function. They're, they're, they're providing the liquidity to the buyers, and they expect to get compensated for that on average. And the way they're compensated is by um, when they have to go back and buy the stock back themselves, they expect to do it at a slightly lower price. So uh, essentially, the buying pressure pushes the prices in the short run up a little bit above where they're going to be uh, a month further in the future. Um, and same on the downside. Um, so we, we've known that that exists, um, but it's fairly weak in the data. Um, it's much stronger for small cap stocks. It's also gotten much weaker in the last 20 years, sort of post-decimalization, um, which um, you know we kind of use as a rubric to not just mean the actual move to decimal pricing, but there was also a lot of other things happening in the market 20 years ago around um, direct market access and, and um, um, other ways that made trading less expensive. Um, so, um, we, we see this in the data, but um, the paper I'm presenting, and, and thinking about these things is, is a big interest of mine, just in general, sort of the real-world um, frictions that actual traders face in the market um, that I think are um, often um, completely ignored in academia um, is, is a real interest of mine. Um, so I've been thinking about these sort of transaction costs more generally quite a bit, writing about them. Um, and this paper is really trying to get a better lens and understand more of the details about the reversal phenomena that we know about. Um, it's a paper I've tried to write twice before in the last seven or eight years and failed at. Um, this, this version came off really well. It's, it's, it's a paper I've written with uh, three co-authors at Dimensional. Um, and sort of what we're interested in um, is in some sense, getting a better lens on the liquidity effect by, by a slightly cleaner measure of reversals. Um, and so we take out some of the, we're using a slightly different measure of reversals that um, is, is sort of trying to ignore some price moves that are purely news driven. I think I heard an adage, uh, someone say, I think Jeremy said, trade on, trade on news and sell on, buy on news and sell on rumor. Buy on rumor, yeah. sell on news. Um, and it's sort of that. We're, we're, a, a part, of, part of the problem with the standard reversals people use is that the reversals are a contrarian uh, uh, sort of bet. And the problem is, is that the big moves, short-term moves in stock prices that are driven by big news events, the biggest one, the most important one is probably earnings announcements, uh, really obscure the, the impact of the reversals. The stock's gone up a lot Sort of the reversals literature says if it's gone up a lot over the last month, it should come down a little bit for liquidity reasons. But if it's gone up a lot because it had really strong earnings announcement, you're not going to see that same drop in prices because that was a news-driven jump in prices, not a liquidity-driven jump in prices. Um, so you can get a, a better lens on reversals by, by taking out some news-related phenomena. When you do that, they look much stronger. They're really striking how strong they are in the data. Um, and then the most interesting part of the paper for me is that there's just a lot of nuance in how these reversals look, both how big they are and how long they last. Um, so I think the most striking um, sort of fact that we document in the paper is that how long it takes liquidity to come back to the market, um, perhaps not surprisingly, once you think about it, um, 
it is highly dependent on how much the stock trades. For stocks that don't trade as very much, that have relatively low share turnover, low volume, um, the reversals, you know, which we think about as being a one-month phenomenon, they can last two, three, even four months. Whereas for the most traded stocks, generally the reversal is completely over and undone within a couple weeks. There's just a very dramatic difference um, in the time horizon um, over which these reversals happen. Um, there are also big differences in magnitude um, using um, the volatility of the underlying stocks. Uh, given, given how long they last, um, the more volatile stocks, the ones that are riskier for market makers to hold, um, have bigger uh, reversals. Um, and, and this is, you know, I think it's interesting in and of itself, but I think it has, you know, big implications for practitioners because um, even if you're not going to try and trade on liquidity directly, anyone who's running any sort of portfolio when they rebalance, they want to be demand, you know, the liquidity they demand. They want to be demanding liquidity at the lowest prices they can. Um, and they want to be, when, they, when they're offering liquidity, they want to be getting the best prices for it. So I think this, this, this research is sort of um, being important for practitioners because it helps you think about the best ways to implement your strategies um, in a way that, that minimizes transaction costs. Yeah, that's one of the things you, you say you think a lot about that people in the academic world have not estimated transaction costs well enough. If you were to try to make a, let's just say I went from U.S. large caps, U.S. small caps, and some foreign large and small caps, how much do you think people should be costing or, or you know, deducting for transaction costs? And how has that changed? Uh, well, you see it changing enormously in the data. Uh, I have... Um, I have some research with uh, an ex-student of mine, Mihail Velikov, um, that's basically tried to estimate the cost of trading a bunch of strategies that academics look at. Um, and they can really be quite significant and, and really affect how much we, you know, profit, how profitable these strategies look. Um, and, but, but over time, there's been a huge, again, post-2001, post-decimalization, prices came down a lot. Um, they also flattened a lot. It, it was striking you know, how steep it was. As you got into the, the, the micro caps, they were, you know, the, the biggest reductions were for those expensive to trade things. Everything's gotten cheaper to trade, but it's there's just more of the world in, which is sort of investable at reasonable costs than there used to be. Um, in terms of uh, how big these are now, um, I mean, they vary over time. Liquidity, one of the hard things about liquidity is it's a multi-dimensional concept. It's not just about, you know, quoted spreads. It's about um, how much you move prices. Um, what is the price impact of your trading? And it's also about how fast. It might be that if you try to do the whole trade quickly, there might be some stock that has, you know, that it costs you 20 bips um, in, in the overall price to trade if you want to trade a large amount very quickly. There might be another stock that if you tried to do that, it would cost you 40 bips. But if you work the order slowly, you could do better than 20 bips. Um, and um, it's also something that varies over time. You know, the, the cost of trading in the time series, um, it, it's easier to trade when markets are pretty calm. When markets get scared and volatile, it becomes more expensive to trade. So, um, if, if I were to pin you, try to pin you down for one number on, like, let's say a, a 100% turnover strategy for U.S. large caps, how much do you think that should cost you to trade? 100% annum? Yeah. So, so basically turning over the whole portfolio. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's relatively small for those stocks now in the, you know, measured in tens of bits. Um, but um, if, you, if you go back, you know, when we're looking at back tests, um, if you go back as far as academics like to, it's certainly more expensive, you know, maybe a few times that right. in the 70s and 80s. So things that you um, thought had at alpha would be in all by trading and just impractical to, to turn over. Yeah, so in the work I did with Mihail, um, you know, we saw that in some sense, the sharp ratio on momentum looked, you know, almost, you know, not quite twice as high as what it looked like on the market or in value in the historical data. But when you accounted for transaction costs, they looked very similar. I mean, that was actually a, a sort of recurring theme. If you looked at a lot of these academic strategies among small caps, they had unbelievably attractive um, sort of risk-reward trade-offs. 
So once you accounted for transaction costs, running value in the small caps looked very similar to running value in the large caps, running momentum in the small caps. You know, it's, it's after, it looked like the real world returns were more similar across different types of stocks than, uh, than the sort of the paper returns that academics like to talk about. As you think about the big picture questions you think the industry needs to research and address, what are the big questions you think uh, you have future future explorations on? Well, I mean, obviously, AI is a big thing in our industry. Um, um, I think that, you know, I think there's a lot of um, misunderstanding of what AI even means. I mean, I, I don't think about it. I, I think there's a problem in how we've anthropomorphized these, um, these algorithms. Um, I generally think about AI in general as being a way of coming up with some descriptive statistics about data. So that's what we do with regressions. With regressions, we try and you know, say something about the data and say how certain we are about the data. But regressions are a way of doing that in a sort of efficient computational way. But there was no reason to do regressions the way we do, except that you know, when people had their graduate students do this by hand, taking two weeks to run a regression in the market, um, that was all they could do. Um, AI is really just a more flexible space in which to use some minimization of some objective function to come up with um, some descriptive statistics about data. Um, and it, it, so it's kind of generalized progression. Um, it, it can be really powerful, but it's really, really good when you can train um, your algorithm to an objective ground truth using lots of data. Um, and I think that's where it becomes a problem in finance. It's very good at doing some stuff. You're, if you're wanting to you know, clean data or, or, or find data, um, it's very good at that. But in terms of um, you know, coming up with investment strategies, I worry that it's very flexible. It allows you to do a lot of overfitting of the data. Overfitting of the data is something that's very easy to do already. Um, it's very easy to run regressions and we have lots and lots of different things that we can use in our regressions. Um, and the data sets we use are actually not that big, the, the financial data sets. It's not, it, this is not experimental science where we can create more data. We are stuck with the market, what's really happened in the real world in the markets. Um, and um, I worry that AI is too good at overfitting that. And then I just, I also, you know, the big issues here are not about, it's got, about what is the objective ground truth. I, I don't just don't, I don't think the known, the, the truth they're trying to get at is known. And so I don't think you can train them to that. We're out of time. We've been talking with Professor Robert Novi Marks of the University of Rochester. He's going to be speaking at the Jacobs Levy Quant Conference next week, next Friday, September 22nd. You should thank our producer, soundboard, Chris Tooks. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.